1: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to New Books and Biography, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Mark Clovis, your host for the channel. Today, I'm speaking with Ian Kumakawa, author of the book, The First Serious Optimist, A.C. Pigou, and the Birth of Welfare Economics. Ian, welcome to New Books Network.
0: Thanks, Mark. Great to be here.
1: Well, it's great to have you on our show. I was wondering if you could start us off by telling our listeners something about yourself.
0: Sure. Uh, I'm a historian of economic thinking uh, and of modern Britain and the British Empire. Um, I am uh, currently a postdoctoral fellow at the Center for History and Economics at Harvard University, and I just finished up my PhD from there as well.
1: Congratulations.
0: (laughs) Thanks very much.
1: I was wondering if you could tell us what it was that led you to write a biography about Pigou.
0: Sure. Well, from a pretty early stage in my academic career, I was really interested in the interplay of politics and philosophy, especially ethics and science. Uh, And one of the places where I found this interplay particularly rich was in the history of economic thought. Um, The history of economic thought in the early 20th century. And especially, I became interested in, in Cambridge, uh, Cambridge, England, the, the Cambridge School of Economics. So I was poking around in um, books about Cambridge School economics, this was even as an undergraduate, and um, just came across this, I was actually looking for an undergraduate paper topic, and I came across this work by AC Pigou, called uh, Socialism versus Capitalism, a book that was written in 1937, uh, in which Pigou really lays out a very uh, nuanced, uh, short, popular, but nuanced um, comparison of the systems of socialism, capitalism. And that was really surprising because of what I knew of Pigou at that point, Keynes's foil, a more conservative voice, um, this was this was a much more nuanced and and interesting exposition than I had anticipated. So it it just led me down this rabbit hole of investigating Pigou's life, uh, which is just fascinating. And I think I found was a really wonderful window into this world of economic thinking at this time. Hmm.
1: I, I was. Thinking that as you're describing it, that that comes across really well in the book. You ke- reflect, you, you you capture how Cambridge is really at this moment of transition when it comes to economics and economic thinking. You're not just describing Pigou's life; you're describing the emergence of economics as this field of study. It's no longer just political economy as it was thought of in previous centuries. It's becoming much. It's becoming a very different field. And, and as you describe, Pigou is uh, you know very much a, a part of that transformation.
0: That's right. It's it's becoming economics at this point is becoming self-consciously a science and that's where that third uh, leg of the stool comes in not I and mean, it's growing out of very very strong ethical commitments that Pigou has. Pigou originally studies history and he reads very widely in utilitarian and and idealist ethics. Um it's always meant to be in the in the 19th century political economy is in a sense not unlike political theory today or even government or political science today. It's a way about how to organize a a vision or an understanding of how to organize society. But in the early 20th century at Cambridge and and elsewhere, um, science is really coming in, uh, that the practitioners of this new discipline of economics are thinking of themselves as scientists in the way that um, Darwin and his followers were scientists for biology, creating a new uh, thought system, a new, a new uh, general theory uh, to describe the way the world works. Uh, so, so yes, those three things are really coming together at, at this point, and Pigu is right in the center of it. So how does
1: Pigu get to that point? What was his early life like? From what background did he come? And what was it that led him to go into economics at, an early, at such an early stage?
0: Right. Well, what's really interesting about Pigou is that, uh, and this isn't this isn't uncommon for people in his particular generation, is he actually went into economics relatively late. He only took his first what we would consider to be a sort of economics course in his second year in university. Um, he was from a upper middle class, uh, very upper middle class family, uh, with history in the empire uh, his grandfather was in uh, was in india um and his, on both sides there were there were uh, people who were involved in the in in uh, imperial trade um he grew up in uh, near near pember in pembury in kent and he went to harrow a very prestigious boarding school outside of london and then to Cambridge, King's College, Cambridge, where he spent the rest of his really life, his, certainly the rest of his academic life. Um, and there in this heady milieu, he uh, encountered um, really all sorts of new ideas. Uh, he originally was interested in history and he was attached to a circle of people who were trying to reform the history curriculum at Cambridge to make it much more professional along the lines of a German model. Um, And he was always interested in this sort of rigor. But it wasn't until the second year where he becomes attached to the circle of Alfred Marshall, the great Cambridge economist, that he really takes a shine to economic theory. Uh, But his background originally was much more in the humanities, in ethics and history and letters. So he is part of the.
1: I was wondering if you explain a bit about Marshall because he's such a large figure. Uh, he appears in in, in in so much of the works of the time. He's very. Uh, he, his life touches upon so many figures that are in Cambridge and are part of this transformation. And, and what is it that that draws Pigou to him?
0: Well, it's a it's an interesting story. I mean, I think Marshall is quietly charismatic. Uh, he is a person who makes very fast friendships, that is to say very strong friendships. Um, Marshall is a codifier. He is, by the time Pigu encounters him in the late 1890s, he is the person at Cambridge and in Britain who is understood to be the center of this new emerging way of thinking about economics, um, the, the built around uh, marginalism. And uh, you know, this, is the, this is the, if you take in first year economics, the you see the supply and demand curves. Marshall is the one who really popularizes these, um, these concepts and formalizes them into codified systems. Uh, and he does this really by writing an incredibly influential textbook, Principles of Economics. So by the time Pigou encounters Marshall, Marshall is pretty famous. And uh, Pigou, when he started at Cambridge, he was much more attached to to the circle of this this historian called Oscar Browning. And Browning was a larger-than-life Edwardian. He lived large. He had these big parties. Um, He was really uh, a, a social character. And Marshall was much more reserved. And you see, at some point through Pigou's undergraduate experience, Pigou is turning from this more vivacious, uh, um, bon vivant in Edwardian Britain into a more serious scholar. and Marshall and his friendship and uh, his mentorship by Marshall um, is part of that turn. I was wondering if you could perhaps explain
1: what Marshall was championing in particular in terms of economic ideas and the degree to which Pigou himself adopted them or was he developing his own thinking at a fairly early stage?
0: Well, at a very early stage, Pigou was very much a Marshallian. Um, the the Marshall was interested in creating a system of economic thought that was whole, that w- was not related to particular uh, specific statistics that were being collected, um, that weren't just looking at local phenomenon, but were looking at Uh, economic laws, economic truths, and uh, he called it the organon, Um, a a, a whole codified system of economic thinking um, built around, uh, in a sense, um, psychological decisions that happen in everyone's minds. Uh, It was a theory of, of, of human thinking, human behavior, human social action, much more sweeping than what uh other for instance what the comp- comp- competing school of thought in in Britain was at the time the historical school um and pigou there were certain tools that went with this the analysis of marginal costs uh and marginal benefits um supply and demand and and pigou at in the early stages as you would expect from an undergraduate and a um a very early postgraduate uh, was Deploying these tools, not revolutionizing these tools, but deploying these tools um, to some new projects, uh, not breathtakingly new. And it wasn't, it wasn't really until the 19, well, 1910 and, and afterwards that Piku is creating very, really new and exciting um, ideas. Um, but he is recognized as very early on as an incredibly skilled practitioner of Marshall's system.
1: It's also fascinating as you describe in the book how so many of his ideas have this very practical orientation. Like He's not just talking about economics in an abstract way. He's not talking about pure theory or or a a very mathematically centric uh, economics, but he's, he's he's engaging with issues of industrial relations. He's Thinking even at an early stage about welfare economics, he seems to be for someone who has this this life in academia. And as you describe this reluctant engagement with official uh, bodies that are trying to address these problems, he nonetheless does seem to spend a lot of his thinking, in, you know, engaging with these problems and thinking about the the impact of a lot of this stuff.
0: Right. This is a, and this is something that ebbs and flows over the course of Pigou's career. At the beginning. He is young and he is very politically motivated. Uh, The big issue in the early, very early twentieth century in Britain, um, certainly before 1906, is free trade. And Pigou is a dedicated free trader, and he is willing to uh, publicly advocate on behalf of this really charged political issue. And he does so with by by deploying um, Marshallian uh, tools, Marshallian ideas. Um, and so in the early part of his career, before he becomes a professor, he becomes a professor in 1908. But before he becomes a professor, he is, you can really see this synthesis of high theory and practical application. Now, he becomes a professor in 1908. And at that, he succeeds Marshall um, professorships are, are rare as rare as hen's teeth at this point, and there really aren't very many professorships of economics in particular in Britain at this time. And so, becoming a professor was an enormously big deal. And so, when Pigou did this, he didn't. He felt that he needed to cut out political advocacy. He felt he needed to cut out um, more uh, uh, clear-cut philosophical musings or or ethical musings, rather than what seem to be much more rigorously economic music uh uh investigations uh and so you all of this politics and ethics sort of takes a back seat in his writing It it, it is submerged under the surface of his economic analysis um but it as, as we'll probably talk about later on um it comes out again later on in his life once the sort of value of professional objectivity changes in his mind it
1: And while you – he
0: does, as
1: you point out, uh, pull away from that in terms of his professional work, he nonetheless does remain engaged with events. And I'm thinking in particular about his position during the First World War because he's a person who doesn't have to take the stand that he does. He doesn't have to become a conscientious objector, but he does so anyway. I mean, he – yeah, I find that real world engagement—you kind it really pushes back against the stereotype of the detached Don living in his own, you know, world of 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 thinking.
0: Right. So, the First World War is a major turning point for Pigou, as it is for the rest of of Britain, and certainly the rest of 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 well, the rest of British liberalism. Uh, and Pigou very much is a liberal and he 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 belongs before World War One. He is committed to these liberal ideas. He's committed to uh, the improvement of the underprivileged. He's it, it, And by that, I mean both the transfer of material resources, but also the moral improvement. He uh, has a very paternalistic view, paternalistic view toward the poor um, in London slums, especially and in fact, he writes early on in his career about how to improve the poor in London slums without ever going to the London slums. <laughs> uh, what happens? So, I mean, there's a there's a there's always a distance between Pigou's work and on in terms of his work in his early career, his work on theoretically how to improve the lot of of the underprivileged, and his actual life experience, which is in these very, very comfortable circumstances in Cambridge and in the Lake District. Um, and World War I brings him into contact with people that he ordinarily wouldn't have been in contact with. He's he's not technically a conscientious objector, um, but he volunteers for service not with the, the armed forces, but with the Friends Ambulance Corps. Uh, so he is um, on the front in uh, Flanders. And he is seeing all of this demonstration. He's working, uh, all of this devastation, writes really movingly about the the shattered ruins of Ypres Cathedral. Uh, And he's working shoulder to shoulder in these really terrible circumstances with people from a wider range of social backgrounds. Uh, And what he sees, it makes him realize that, um, well... That that the normal economic rules of 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 the day, um, they fall down and they need to be uh, brought in line with real ethical feelings. So so he uh, he calls quite for a quite radical capital levy for a wealth tax during World War One to to help pay for the war to make sure that the poor aren't burdened burdened with. The massive cost of the war, and he says that you know in this, in this war, uh, in the draft, the everyone is being called to make huge sacrifices. You know, so many people are dying, um, and it makes sense to have. If there's going to be a draft on life, it also makes sense to have a draft on money, uh, and so you can see here in World War One how his economic reasoning is so strongly influenced by his. Uh, ethical commitments, and this is always true throughout his life, but it's especially right at the surface during World War One. He doesn't just serve
1: uh, in uh, as a, a volunteer with the ambulance corps, though. He also, at near the end of the war, goes into government service. He and he, in particular, is involved in a couple of commissions in the at the end of the war and the immediate aftermath of the war that point to that. Uh, you know that crossover from purely academic writing focus to the effort to try to apply it to policy. What was he doing during this period? Which uh, uh, and and what and and
0: how does that shape his work? Right. This is this is great. I, so toward the end of the war and in the immediate aftermath, Pigou is summoned to London. Uh, by this point, he is the uh, professor of political economy at Cambridge. It's the arguably if not the then maybe the one of two very very prestigious roles in uh britain for an economist so he he has all of these credentials and he's he's involved in um several committees one that deals with revamping the income tax and two others that are involved with um, determinations about when and how Britain should return to the gold standard which had been suspended during World War One. Um, and so here is the chance for Pigou to put his uh, scientific expertise, motivated by his ethical values, into real practice. You know, he writes in his, and I I guess I should just back up for a second and say his model of how to help, his model of how to be useful in society um, up until World War I was to be an incredibly respected expert. And then as this respected expert, someone who's seen as nonpartisan, someone who's not seen as motivated by um, fringe uh, or even really deeply held um, uh, ideological beliefs, um and this is why he cuts out politics and ethics from his writing he wants to have that scientific reputation that scientific authority and so his model is to leverage that scientific authority in just these sort of ways by le- by talking to people in positions of real authority um, real power real political power to get legislation or to get policies enacted and so this is where you would expect everything is leading in Pigou's model of how to do his bit and help ameliorate the world. But when he gets to London, what he finds is that uh, these committees are very pro forma. Uh, these committees are staffed with people who have been selected in order to sort of preordain what the result is going to be. I mean, everyone on that these committees that um, push the government to return to the gold standard are, many of them are financiers, and they've been hand-selected by um, treasury administrators who want to have a political cover to return to the gold standard early. And so Pigou basically sees that these administrators aren't, and Pigou agrees with this, but he sees that this isn't uh, bureaucracy. He, He later writes, how far from philosopher King's these, these bureaucrats are so he's really disenchanted with the state. And he becomes really disenchanted with the, the state as an apparatus to, to, to further the sort of policies that he, um, he, he would have, have, have planned. Uh, and he is in, on these committees incredibly disengaged. He goes off, he goes to the first few, and then he goes off to Switzerland and hikes. Uh, he's a big al- alpinist. And so, um, you know, World War One is a major point of disillusionment. You know, not just in, not just for for Pigou, obviously, for for everyone, uh, that this is what humanity is capable of. But for Pigou, it's it's both World War One, what he sees, the devastation in in Belgium, but also. Um, The fact that he kind of loses faith in the state, he kind of loses faith in the in the the government to to be a real instrument of positive change. And he recovers that faith later in his life. But there's there's um, it's a it's a it's a powerfully disillusioning moment in in Pigou's trajectory. It's it's fascinating
1: he reaches this point. Right when he is simultaneously reaching what you describe as his point of, of of greatest prominence, his greatest influence, he has he comes out in 1920 with the Economics of Welfare. He is he, he's writing and and he seems to have a, a, a stature. Where is he in terms of the uh, economic ideas of the time, and in particular with uh, the the one name in economics that is, is probably uh, more familiar to people today than, than that of Pigu, which is uh, John
0: Maynard Keynes. Right, right. So, uh, in essence, um, after these government committees uh, through through the nineteen late 20, mid late twenties and thirties, uh, Pigou is less active in public life than he had been before. He is very active at Cambridge. Uh, he teaches heavily. He's involved in. Um, shaping the curriculum for uh, the economics faculty. But unlike Keynes, Pigou remains really in the ivory tower. Keynes is uh, a man uh, described by contemporaries, but you know, who know both of them as really a man of the world. Uh, and, and whereas Pigou is a man cloistered at Cambridge. Um, Pigou and Keynes go way back. They knew each other when Pigou was a fellow at King's, a quite young fellow at King's in the early 1900s, and and Keynes was an undergraduate there. They, you know, would have dinner together. They would go to the same parties. Um, Pigou was instrumental in getting Keynes arguing for Keynes to get fellowship at King's College, so they're part of the same very much small academic community. Um, But Keynes's star is rising, not just within the world of British academia, but just within the world as a whole, uh, he is publishing these incredible bestsellers, uh, "The Economic Consequences of the Peace" after the Treaty of Versailles, uh, and through this work, Keynes becomes a real household name, and and you know Pigou is is not. Now by the 30s, uh, Pigou is back in government, uh, working. As an advisor to the government, and um, so whereas Pigou is very much uh, sort of taking a, 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 a hiatus from um, public service, uh, Keynes is really stepping stepping up, and and this sort of sets the stage for um, uh, the the intellectual showdown is too melodramatic, but the intellectual. Uh, Real heated discussion that happens in the 30s around the time of the Great Depression.
1: Uh, I was wondering if you could elaborate upon that discussion that takes place because you have this—you know, Pigou is, is sort of the uh, has his great his greatest prestige in the 1920s. You describe how he begins to shift by the end of the decade towards dealing with more technical issues with, in terms of economics, and, and that you chart it with. Uh, a a greater pessimism. How does that clash with Keynes's ideas, especially when, as Keynes is, you know, laying the groundwork for the, the theories that, uh, or it begins to articulate the theories for which he is most commonly known today.
0: Right. I mean, we haven't talked much about uh, Pigou's, the actual content of Pigou's economics. Um, So the, the, there are, it's complicated because the thing that, so I guess the first thing to say is Keynes uh, is thinking about this new way the the sort of what now is understood to be the birth of macroeconomics, this new way of understanding uh, the role of the state in um, the economic health of the the land or the the polity, but also um, how to conceptualize the the macroeconomy itself. And one of the big points that in terms of policy prescriptions that Keynes is pushing for, is for the government to be much more actively involved in managing the economic health, the overall economic health of you know, this thing called the economy. Um, and so that means Spending money that means uh, actively adjusting interest rates. That means for Keynes uh, instituting a tariff. Um, Pigou is understood to be, and basically the 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 under if you had to reduce it to one big critique. One way of thinking about it is that uh, the market isn't going to take care of itself. Now, uh, Pigou is understood by Keynes, and he's called out by Keynes in Keynes' most famous book, The General Theory of Employment, Interest, and Money, as the most uh, advanced example, the shining example of the so-called classical school of economics, which in caricature means that everything is going to take, the market is going to take care of itself. Now, Pigou didn't feel this way at all, um, but he definitely did think that wages would have to fall for the market to Correct, and uh, Keynes did not think this, and so there's this. But but in short, Keynes is depicting Pigou as almost a straw man. At least this is how Pigou feels it, of of being someone who just believes in the market working out, uh, and this sparks a whole set of uh, back and forths in economic journals um, in the in the '30s. But I should just back up and say that Pigou. The real uh, contribution that Pigou had made to the history of economics in the 1910s and 1920s was to identify these market failures, really, uh, when the market doesn't work out. uh, What are now known as uh, 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 externalities, what Pigou called external diseconomies or external economies, um, where, uh, in fact... um, the most famous example now is pollution. Uh, pollution isn't necessarily going to be solved by just the market um, pricing it in a in a in a particular way. Somebody needs to come in and uh, note that factory owners in Pigu's day are negatively impacting the social health and the social wealth of uh, the community for their own profit. Um, that and that the market itself wasn't going to just solve this negative problem, um, and so, uh, uh, but 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 that doesn't shouldn't take away from the fact that uh, Pigou is really coming under great challenge from Keynes um, for being a representative of this perceived older way of thinking about economics.
1: It, it does seem that. Keynes is picking out Pigou as a foil, and, and it's because Pigou does have that prominence. I mean, he is, after all, this. as you were saying, you don't have a whole lot of academic positions of great prominence in economics during this period, Pigu Pigou is one of them. And and, and it, you make it clear as to just how it, it is a disservice to a lot of Pigou's thinking that, it's, that he is more nuanced, and he's also evolving as well, as you described when you get into uh, the 1940s and his response to what was happening during the second world war. And then afterward with the labor government.
0: Right. So the, the, the Pigou and, and Keynes are both liberals, um, both understood to be liberals. What's what I found really fascinating about Pigou's story is that there's this wider history of what happens to liberalism in the early 20th century in Britain that, uh, you know, the liberal party um, is torn. uh, It's torn between the, the, between people who want to be more reformist, uh, who want to value the social welfare, people who are more interested in, um, uh, um, at least in in the the early ways of of uh, uh, how Pigou would think about it, valuing the social wheel over individual rights. I mean, lib- the liberal party was always had this al- always had this uneasy synthesis of valuing primary individual rights of individuals, um, but also valuing the collective well-being. Uh, And sometimes those two things are in conflict. And basically, there's this story that in the 1910s, and certainly in the 1920s, uh, the Liberal Party is sort of cleaved in half by those who are more committed to the individual uh, rights aspect of things. And they sort of move toward uh, the Conservative Party, and those who are more interested in the uh, social welfare parts of things. And those are Pushed more toward the Labour Party. And so, in the words of one of Pigou's friends, uh, Charles Masterman, the Liberal Party was crushed between the upper and nether uh, uh, millstones of privilege and revolt. And so <laughs> it it, it sort of split. And what's interesting about th- this split is that Pigou uh, actually, over the course of the 20s and 30s, and certainly by the 40s, is not moving towards the individual rights side of things. He's moving toward the social welfare side of things. He's moving increasingly by the 40s toward um, the Labour Party, and uh, whereas Keynes is, is really not. Um, and so there's this notion that Keynes, Pigou is Keynes's foil, uh, that he is representing this more conservative, um, older version of economics, and that Keynes is... Uh, representing a new, more progressive, more left leaning strand of economics. But actually, if you look at it, Pigou is moving toward uh, the Labour Party. And he's doing this not least because of the influence of one of his really good friends, Philip Noel Baker, who is a a Labour Party official um and so by the 40s uh Pigou is in his private correspondence with Noel Baker is suggesting platforms for the Labour Party speeches that uh Noel Baker is going to going to give um he is um really in full-throated support of uh Labour Party programs um and by the end of World War 2 when uh the Labour Party is poised to um uh, win this election uh, in 1945, that ultimately ushers in the, the, the post-war welfare state, uh, Pigou is incredibly enthusiastic um, and uh, very excited about the possibility that the government is going to do something uh, for social welfare, um, uh, uh, recovering the sort of hope that he had lost in the, uh, um, during and the, in the aftermath of World War I.
1: Does he feel that these uh, sentiments are vindicated because he, uh, unlike Keynes, who dies in nineteen forty six, Pigu lives until nineteen fifty nine, so he has a, a chance to not just see the life of of the Atlee governments, but he also gets to see the you know the 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 welfare state establish itself, NHS, uh, you know the nationalisation so forth. Did does he feel that 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 this time? You know the government got it right, or was he disappointed with the outcome? And, and and if so, why?
0: It's it's hard to tell exactly how vindicated or how excited he feels at uh, in the fifties. There's very little that survives of his writings from 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 that time. Um, but what is certain is that as things are happening in the forties, he's very excited. Uh, And the tone of the writing that we do have um, definitely is more laden with the ethics and politics that we would see in the really early parts of his writing than in the sort of that interwar period where he's becoming a much more technical economist. Um, You know, by the end, he has there's this article that he writes in this um, philosophy journal, Diogenes, interdisciplinary uh, social science philosophy journal, Diogenes. And he's credited by the editor of Diogenes as really having a formative intellectual um, role in forming the, the, the post-war welfare state. And I think he's very, I would imagine, I don't have definitive word on this, but he's, uh, I think that that must have been gratifying. <laughs> um, I, I, I think that uh, that by the end, though, in his latest works that are published. There's a book called Income Revisited uh, from the 50s, um, mid 50s. Pigou is coming out in favor of social policies, or at least social principles, that are so much more left leaning and radical than uh, he had been, he had ever felt before. So, for instance, he makes this claim that um, really any sort of inequality, really profound inequality. Is un, in, not not a, a just way of allocating resources, um, and that's even if uh, even if it's not inherited, even if everyone had the same opportunities, inequality um, uh, inequality on a on a massive scale, which obviously is I should say, um, the inequality that existed in Britain at that time is less than the inequality that exists in the United States at this time, um, was not just. Uh, and that's just goes so far beyond what he had uh written in the past and i think it's not unreasonable to believe that that transformation in his thinking uh was due in large part to the um example of the political trends that were were happening after world war 2 in the welfare state in particular
1: and that's for me is what i find so fascinating about your book which is that you you write write about this intellectual evolution that that this very prominent figure uh, undergoes. You're talking about a person who is able to reach and speak upon more deeply the trends of the 20th century than many of his contemporaries. And yet, unlike – again, I'll go back to the most obvious example of of, of John Maynard Keynes. he's He's a name we just don't see Talked about anymore. I mean, we we you know in two thousand eight, uh, Skidelsky comes out with this book. You know the you know the, basically the return of Keynesianism is, is being championed in the in, in the press, and 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 still that that's sort of the touchstone. And yet, what you describe is a you know, an intellectual commentary or or or, or uh, an analysis of things that are arguably even more relevant in terms of the modern day political discourse than what you know Keynes and, and others were, were, were talking about. Uh, back in the nineteen thirties, nineteen forties,
0: right? I, I, you know, there's uh, a couple of explanations for that. Um, the fact that that Keynes and even Marshall get more historical and, and contemporary attention than Pigou. One is that Pigou burned most of his papers. Um, this is a very, you know, this is a inside baseball historical uh, historian's explanation of why that happened. You know, the <laughs> archival record. Um, but, uh, Keynes is also just much more charismatic. Uh, he's a much more charismatic thinker. He's a much more charismatic writer. He's a much more, uh, charismatic, uh, advocate for his ideas. Um, I'm, I'm not, it's sort of, I don't know if, if Pigou is more relevant than Keynes now, but certainly he is incredibly relevant. And I think people are talking about Pigou, uh, with regard to climate change because he, this maybe hasn't come out in the, this uh, this conversation as much as it it could have. Pigou is the th- one thinker who whose work stands behind modern economic thinking about um, uh, uh, carbon taxes uh, and ways of conceptualizing um, climate change in economic terms. And this is what externality theory does uh, for the discipline of economics. Um, and 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 I think in in popular thinking as well, uh, and so I think you 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 see Pigou's name mentioned more and more with regard to that, less with regard to inequality, although he is a a, a major theorist of inequality. Um, what is so striking about Pigou, though, is that he is responding to uh, what he understands as some of the most important social. And political questions of his time. And what's so striking is how familiar those social and political questions are. And I think that's why uh, Pigou's work resonates so greatly today. It's because those social and political questions just haven't gone away. Uh, we're still grappling with environmental change. We're still grappling with inequality. We're still grappling um, <clears throat> with uh, the real divergence between certain public interests and certain private interests. Um, so, yeah, I think there's a lot in Pigou to speak to our present moment.
1: Well, we've taken up a lot of your time, but before we go, could you tell us what you're working on now?
0: Sure, uh, I'm. My next project is about the growth of the British state in the early 20th century uh, it's also a history of economic thinking uh, it's not a history of economic thinking uh, that concentrates on high economic thought uh, like pigou's that is to say people who are understood as economists it concentrates much more on the economic thinking of uh, mid-level government administrators who are and and business people who are staffing the british state and are adjuncts of the british state in the early 20th century and it contends that the British state was growing really fast uh, in order to render active assistance to British business in the in the early 20th century, between World War I and World War II especially, and that the British state is growing to also uh, to take advantage of imperial markets and uh, by deploying all sorts of imperial administrative expertise. So it's about the growth of the state and the way that intersects with business and the empire.
1: Sounds like a fascinating work. And I hope that when you complete it and it's published, that we can have you back on the uh, podcast to discuss it.
0: Well, that would be great.
1: Ian, thank you very much for taking some time out of your schedule to speak with us. I hope you have a wonderful day.
0: You too. Thanks so
1: much.